Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. Today's guest is Dr. Soph, where we will be discussing the topic of self-sabotage and how it can be a useful thing, how it can tell us a lot about ourselves and it can be a bit of a clue to how we're holding ourselves back and the path we really want to be taking. My book, Sabotage, is out today. You might be listening to this weeks or months after it's been posted, so it's out now, basically. And to celebrate, I'm posting this conversation with Dr. Soph about the topic and all about her brilliant career as a therapist. I recently discovered Dr. Soph and her brilliant Instagram presence, and I'm so glad I have, where she offers up so many tips and makes therapy really accessible to everyone. She has also contributed some wise nuggets to Sabotage, and I'm very grateful for her input. The book is kind of memoir style about my experiences with self-sabotage over the years. And I've called up some of my favourite therapists and psychologists to kind of explain my behaviour and help hopefully other people understand their behaviours. Dr. Soph is a registered clinical psychologist with eight years experience. She offers one-on-one online therapy and coaching to support her clients in a way that fit around their lifestyle. We talk a bit about this in the episode about remote working and how therapy can be accessed digitally now. And her area of expertise is around helping people overcome anxiety and low self-esteem and you can find out more on her website about all the topics that she covers in her sessions. In this conversation we talk about how we don't love the word self-sabotage. It's quite a useful phrase though to sum up why we do what we do, how to spot behaviours, how we get in our own way and how we can find the tools to have in our back pockets to help us overcome the obstacles that always get in the way self-sabotage is useful it helps us reroute ourselves it shows us what we want and Dr. Soph in this episode says it's a way that we seek safety and it's a way that we protect ourselves so it's not about self-blame or feeling like we are the sole issue in our lives the world is trying to sabotage us all the time so the book really is about how we can hopefully not add to the pile and at the very least be on our own side I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Soph. You can find all the information for her new book, which is called A Manual for Being Human, which is going to be amazing. It's out next year. You can find the link in the show notes. You can find the link to sabotage in the show notes. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. Here it is. So I'm very excited to be in the company of Dr. Soph, someone that I stalk daily on Instagram for your inspiration and your knowledge. Oh my God, your brain. And I have quoted you in my book, Sabotage, which is coming out soon. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me on here. And I've stalked you many a time too. So the feeling is very, very much mutual. And I love Sabotage. I'm very thank happy that you. I had an early copy and got to read it. It's very good. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Um, your check is in the post. But I <laughs> wanted to, yes, talk to you because I guess we've um, been DMing on Instagram and, and sort of chatting. And actually, it's just really nice to do that because I feel like when you go into your 30s, I'm like, I'm collecting new online friends still. Yeah. And I really, really love it. Yeah, especially in a year where we've been in our houses 
right? So being able to find people electronically has been very important. Absolutely. And I feel like people must feel like that with you. It's such an amazing discovery finding all of your content. I just, it's amazing. We'll get into it now. Um, But yeah, I wanted to ask you, first of all, how you did get into being a therapist. I mean... I feel like it's one of the coolest jobs and I, that's probably really <laughs> annoying when people say that to you. No one has ever said that to me so that's great. <laughs> but I feel like growing up a lot of people say they want to be a therapist and then obviously they don't go and do all the work and actually become one but I like the idea of it in premise but can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah and actually I'm really glad you asked this question because my journey to becoming a therapist involves me having poor mental health in the first place and I think that's something that people don't talk about so when I was 18, I'd freshly finished school, I started doing art and I started to have panic attacks and they came out of the blue and I was going to say they were really intense, but I don't think there's any other version of a panic attack. I don't think there's like a calm one or a casual one. So I started having panic attacks and I didn't know what they were and I didn't have any reference point either I didn't know anyone who'd had panic attacks I didn't my family certainly didn't know what was going on and so the only way I could make sense of this really overwhelming experience that essentially had my thoughts shouting you're gonna die or you're having a heart attack or you're losing your mind the only reference point I had really were the movies where anyone with a mental health condition pretty much I was going to say historically but present day as well is cast in the role of the mad or the bad or the dangerous and almost certainly always cast as if their life is over. So I was having panic attacks and then interpreting them to mean it was the end of my life and I'd become mad, bad slash dangerous. And obviously that made it much worse. So I went to the GP, they put me on antidepressants. I wasn't depressed, it made me much more anxious. Went to a therapist, which was just the wrong therapist for me. I got there, tell me about your father. That made my anxiety much worse. I just needed to cope. Um, And then eventually I started a mindfulness course and found a therapist who just gave me the tools I needed. And from that moment onwards, after listening to breathing exercises 24 hours a day, honestly, I don't know how long for, when I got control over my anxiety, I was like, right, this is, something's got to be done. Think about how many people are experiencing panic or another form of emotional Mm -hmm. distress and have absolutely no idea where to turn. And when you first experience anxiety, one of the most important predictors of whether it goes, you go on to have panic attacks is the way you interpret it. So for example, if you have anxiety and you're like, my body's preparing me to fight or run for my life, that's the reason I feel like this. It's totally normal. I need to follow it with the burst of activity or a breathing exercise. You have a very different experience than the one I had. So I trained to be a psychologist, which took forever. So undergraduate, master's, doctorate. And yeah, decided to use my own knowledge to genuinely try and make some change in the world. That's incredible. That is incredible. A lot of my favorite coaches, um, that I follow kind of their audiobooks and just their content online they've all it's all come from a place I think of being they have been through it yeah and they're not just telling people how they should be there they're actually is coming from like such a place of experience and I think that's why it resonates so so much 
I wondered if you, yeah, could talk about as well how you have made this more accessible to people because I don't know if it feels new or maybe I'm just old, but it feels like bringing therapy into Instagram in this way does feel sort of new. Oh, it's very new. And it's also still quite taboo, I'd say. Like people have really strong opinions about it. Really? That's surprising. Because it's, so, it's just so gentle and helpful. I think so. <laughs> and people do have good points of it. In some ways, they'll say, for example, Instagram is so bad for people's mental health. Why would you contribute to it? And my answer is there's over one billion people using Instagram. This is where people are at. Therefore, why aren't we trying to shape that environment to make it better for people's health? If people are accessing it every day and we're drip feeding psychological information to them, you could make real change in people's lives. So I was working in the NHS, which I love but was starting to burn out and was just seeing that people, no matter what service I was working in, the first few sessions after they'd made it through the waiting list with me were always the same, teaching people the basics of psychology, what your fight or flight response is, that they're totally normal, not going mad. Um, and that's stuff people shouldn't have to wait for. You could be taught this in school. Mm. You shouldn't have to wait for a year to see a therapist to learn what you don't need a doctor. I don't need to be this qualified to tell you that basic information. You could read it in a, on a blog post. You could read it on an Instagram post. You could put those skills into practice right now. So, and do you feel like there's this kind of permission slip that we feel like we need in order to go and get therapy? Because um, I guess in the US, therapy is. I mean, it's it's like going to the dentist, isn't it? It's so. <laughs> normalized which is amazing and I always find that when I'm sat in like a New York cafe I'm overhearing people's therapy sessions I'm getting like passive therapy I'm like writing it down (laughs) and I love how openly people talk about it and over here I feel like I don't know maybe there's a stigma still slightly but it's it's going yeah I definitely think stigma is decreasing I love uh, being able to say, oh, my therapist said blah, blah, blah to my friends. And then they go, oh, my word, mine did too. I love that <laughs> I love it. Um, so I love that the stigma is decreasing. However, the barriers in place, uh, the barriers that get in the way of you accessing therapy are so high right now. So, for example, uh, I think it was in America last year, students were asking for, or asking for therapy five times faster five times more students were asking for therapy than there were enrolling into colleges. Mm. And in the UK, I think it was a 12% increase in people seeking help for their mental health compared to the year before. So I'm having to access old stats from my brain, hence why I'm pausing. But yes, stigma is going down. And also more and more people are asking for and needing help and they simply can't access it either because of the waiting lists or because they live somewhere that doesn't have a service, or they go privately, but then it's expensive. And also, how do you even know where to start to find a therapist who's going to be a good fit for you? So there's a little bit of both. And when it comes to stigma, we've still got a long way to go, I think. Mm. I suppose the good thing, though, about what you're doing and the kind of amount of online content there is now talking about our mental health knowing the basic tools can sort of get us to a certain point. I know it's not the same as having one-on-one therapy ever, but is that what you're trying to do is kind of give people those tools from home? Oh, 100%, because actually not everyone needs therapy. 
don't get me wrong, everyone would benefit from therapy, but not everyone needs it, right? Say um, at 18, I knew everything I needed to know to breathe my way through a panic attack. I wouldn't have needed therapy. If someone had taught me it was normal, I wouldn't have needed therapy. If the people surrounding me know how to support me, I wouldn't have needed therapy. We can just give people the skills and the information to know that they're normal. So don't get me wrong. There are certain situations where therapy is absolutely the best way forward. But sometimes you just need a shoulder to cry on. And also learning the basics as well about our brains and about how they function Mm. and how, I know that you've said this before on other podcasts, about how our sort of modern day life has progressed at such a rapid speed but our brains are actually quite old ancient (laughs) tools and how now that I know what I know I can be in a hotel room in the pitch dark thinking I'm scared I'm gonna get murdered and I can go oh no that's my lizard brain yeah scared that there's a lion outside but I'm okay yeah or even when you go onto Instagram and you see someone else having a good time and you have a fear of missing out when you know that our ancestors were meant to exist within tribes and that any sign of being kicked out of a tribe could mean actual death, suddenly it makes sense as to why FOMO is a thing. Because we've still got this ancient brain that goes, oh my God, I'm on the outside. This means I may start after death. No one's going to protect me when the tiger is at my door, right? And suddenly you think, yes. oh, I'm not a weirdo. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm totally normal. I just need to look after myself. Totally. <laughs> I feel the same with um, any public speaking back yeah, in the day when we could do it in real life. But I remember someone saying, your brain is freaked out, yeah. quite rightly, at like 100 people looking at you. <laughs> because yeah. actually back in the day, they're probably going to, I don't know, kill it, you, eat it you. It would be bad, <laughs> yeah. If there's 100 people looking at you, it's going to be bad. And the only, um, the only ways that we survived thousands of years ago were running away from the danger fighting over it until it went away, freezing solid, stiff to the spot, almost playing dead, or fawning, as in saying to someone, I will do anything that you need me to, you're so wonderful, you know, trying to please your way out of a dangerous situation. So when you were public speaking, those feelings that you had would either have been run like hell, (laughs) fight your way through this, that paralyzing my brain shutting down or who do I need to please so that they'll do this job for me? (laughs) Definitely, I've been known to lose my words many a time, so that's probably me playing dead or something. Yeah, totally normal. Um, But I love as well how you talk about this sabotage sabotaging that we do in our lives and I know that we both completely agree that it's quite a strong word and Mm. we it's not um oh you are the you are the reason that you have messed up like Mm -hmm. it's definitely not about self-blame but I quite like the terminology because I think it's quite a casual way to group together a lot of behaviors Mm -hmm. um like putting off something that you want to be doing or putting (laughs) yourself down or getting in the way of like going on a date or pushing a friend away when actually you want to have a conversation Mm. would you be able to talk a little bit about sort of how self-sabotage might come come out in some of your sessions with people or something quite I don't know common that comes up totally so firstly I love that you mentioned the title uh so self-sabotage yeah I just hate it because when people hear that term self-sabotage they think we're saying to them that they're engaging 
intentionally in a destructive behavior. They're doing something on purpose to ruin their own lives. And it's not that. I think a really useful way of a little uh, little preamble to sabotage is you could call it safety-seeking sabotage. Mm. So, for example, you asked for some common things I see. Okay, procrastination. It's the simplest one. Everyone knows this one, mm. right? You maybe have a personal project that you really care about, yet you notice you do everything on your to-do list, maybe even on your to-don't list, you know, the stuff you shouldn't do ever and you don't want to do ever, but suddenly you really, you're like, oh, I need to text my ex right now, just instead of doing the project that you care about. Um, And when we think of that as self-sabotage, that kind of old school word, we might think, I am intentionally destroying my life. No. There are many reasons you might do it. So for example, it may be that you care so much about this project that you have a high level of anxiety about it going wrong. When your anxiety goes up, your brain goes, how do I stay safe? Avoid that thing. Avoid the Mm -hmm. thing that's kind of like the tiger in the room. Remember, old school brain activity only has one way of fighting what's potential danger and that is run away from it, fight against it. So that person who cares about the project suddenly isn't doing it. Someone else might procrastinate on exactly the same um, project, but because they were told that they would never amount to anything, that they don't deserve to do well, that there isn't a seat for them at the table. So when they think about doing it, anxiety also comes up because it's outside of what they know. So they again fight or run away from it. And then the other thing I want to add is, Lots of people are actually taught to fear success. So, for example, in the UK, tall poppy syndrome. Have you heard of it? Mm. Yeah, the idea if any poppy grows too big, you must cut it down to be the same size as the rest of us. (laughs) Yes. Um, That plus some people's family homes teach them that they shouldn't do well. They'll be laughed at or undermined if they've succeeded. So they may procrastinate, but for a very different reason. Their fear is not what if it fails. Their fear is what if I achieve and everyone starts commenting on my work? What if that leads to abandonment instead? So do you see how that's kind of self-sabotage doesn't really help us understand what's going on. But when we think about it as safety-seeking sabotage, each of those three different examples, they're keeping themselves safe, but ultimately getting in the way of them doing the thing that they would have to. Absolutely. It's like this sabotaging behavior is basically just fear Mm. in disguise like it's just being scared and and I remember once listening to Brené Brown on Oprah on an Oprah show and she was like the thing that human beings are the most terrified of is Mm. not um you know death or negativity Mm. or it's actually joy like we're so scared of being happy Um, yeah we're so scared of like being happy and it being taken away yeah and in that way it's so bizarre to be scared of your own happiness and success yeah that we almost would rather squash ourselves down a bit yeah 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 and I do think that's what's really interesting about that is since uh being in America so I came out to work in New York a couple of years ago um and (laughs) I started telling people what I planned on doing and was already undermining my work like oh I'm a psychologist and I'm thinking about doing an online practice and I'm thinking about doing xy and I was really minimizing my own work and they were like wow isn't that fantastic oh my word I'm gonna set you up with the people I know (laughs) this is gonna be so great how do I support you 
in America, as a rule, this is a big sweeping statement, because they don't have tall poppy syndrome, because there is a real belief that you can succeed, which is a whole conversation for a different day, but there is a real belief <laughs> that you can succeed and there's a pride in success, they may be less likely to fear doing well. And that mm. shows you that there is a real cultural difference in the, well, in what we fear and therefore in the areas that will come out in the areas we self self-sabotage or safety-seeking mm. sabotage yes definitely definitely I've noticed a reaction that's very different weirdly well not not weirdly interestingly from mm. the UK and the US edition of sabotage and it is it is slightly nuanced and different but I wonder if if you're taught from an early age because I know that in the US culture it is about like winning a bit more mm. maybe or mm-hmm. you know the, the amount of money that they put into sports when you're young it is very much like get the badge, do well, live in like, you know, a lovely house and have like a family. Like it's very sort of the the American dream or whatever. Interestingly, people have said, I want that sort of success so badly. I'm sabotaging myself. And then they realize that actually the reason they're sabotaging is because they want an entirely different life. And, yeah. it's, actually le- and it's actually leading them down a better path. Yes, I love what you're talking about here. So after I finished giving these examples, I was like, damn it, Sophie, you didn't give the example of where you're just chasing after the thing that's wrong for you. Yes, so sometimes we self-sabotage because we're going for something that isn't for us. I had a friend who was trying to, um, she spent honestly her whole, I don't even know how many years, trying to get on to medicine. Every year she applied and every year, she is the most incredible woman I know. Um, And every year something went wrong and in the end she got an interview. And the moment she got the interview, she's like, oh, my God, I don't want to be a doctor. And it was this realization that over the seven years prior, she hadn't wanted to do it. And the thing that had been going wrong wasn't that she wasn't good enough. It's that something inside her knew this wasn't for her. This was her dream. So had been getting in her own way. But again, to protect her, it wasn't Mm -hmm. for her. So when we're thinking about safety-seeking sabotage, just sabotage will do, (laughs) there are so many questions to ask, such as, if this behavior is getting in the way of my goal, what is the goal and whose goal really is it? Before you then go on to ask, okay, what is the best Mm -hmm. thing about achieving this goal? What is the worst thing about achieving this goal? What am I risking by even going going for it? So yeah, sometimes we're chasing after something that just was never something we wanted in the first place so interesting and I love that about the the seeking safety because I totally hope that came across I was really worried it wouldn't in the book but hopefully it has that (laughs) that there is so much wisdom to be found in it and actually we kind of need to treat it with kindness and not this kind of I'm messing up my own life it's like no 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 we just need to pinpoint what we're doing and to change our behaviors if yeah, we want and then to find another way to feel safe totally no I definitely felt that in the book yeah for sure yeah well it's it's funny with books and titles because you know you can judge a book by its cover and um hopefully what's inside is, is a bit softer <laughs> than you're sabotaging your whole life it's just removing the word self. The moment you say sabotage, you can tolerate it. When there's self-sabotage, self in front of it, we feel so much shame. We criticize ourselves. We make every moment feel much worse. I know. And also right now, I'm trying not to reference it in every episode in case someone's listening in two years time and they're like, you're bringing up (laughs) coronavirus again. 
<laughs> but I think now that we are, you know, we are living in a very unstable time, there is so much sabotaging us that Ooh. actually the least we could do is be on our own side and try and be there yeah. for ourselves. Have you seen the Netflix documentary, uh, Social Dilemma? The, the Social Dilemma, yes. So scary, but thinking about how the world is shaped essentially to make money of our insecurity. So if you think about um, dieting trends, the gym, everything, every magazine you pick up where you look at an image of someone wearing clothes, everything, every moment of every day someone's trying to make money off us. In The Social Dilemma, they show us that our phone is only after our attention. The fact that they're, you know, even the little ellipsis when it says typing. I used to think, isn't it nice? I can see that someone's typing a message to me. And now I realize, no, no, they're making sure I don't look away. When you realize that the world is geared up to sabotage you, we have to take a pause and think, okay, I obviously cannot breathe my way through all of this stuff and make changes at every level of society. I'm not going to be going to uh, Google and making them change their kind of tactics anytime soon. But there are small changes I can bring into my life every day, such as leaving my phone in a different room when I go to bed, maybe locking it up, maybe deleting all of my emails and other apps from my phone over the weekend when I'm meant to be taking time off. There are small things that we can, we can do so that we don't make it worse. Yes, 100%. I can't remember who coined the hack back terminology but like we can almost ha hack ourselves back and be like yes. I don't want to I don't want to be hacked by you and yes. I want to design my own life yes 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 but sometimes and this is the really important things thing sometimes we are actually addicted right so for example to our phones we are now actually dependent on our phones so if you find it hard to leave your phone in the room that's not because you're weak-willed mm -hmm. it's because your psychology has been hijacked and so for us to hack back it often needs to be a bigger act than just deciding simply I'll leave my phone in another room tonight it might literally be you have to lock it in something totally <laughs> you might have to actively turn it off or even actually during writing the book I had to give my phone to my friend to be like I must not look at this for the next five hours please keep it away from me <laughs> yes but that's such a good point because something yeah, that I do find really irritating is when people assume that willpower is just enough. And like we yeah. see it at New Year's, um, you know, New Year's resolutions, oh, yeah. people are made to feel weak because they're like, well, why couldn't you alone stick to this? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. because we're human beings. <laughs> yeah, our brain does not want to change. Our brain doesn't want to change. The first thing that you need to do when you decide to make a change in your life is not take that first step. It's learn to forgive yourself. The moment that you are tired, the moment that you're stressed, the part of your brain that you need to make decisions moment to moment, your prefrontal cortex, goes offline, which means you're sent back into your old habits. So <laughs> decide to forgive yourself before you decide to make any other changes. That's the only way that you're going to sustainably move forward. Absolutely. Because as we know, we are never fixed in, in you know, air quotes, and it's just an ongoing process forever. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we were never broken in the first place. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so I wanted to ask you just quickly about your work setup. I I know that a lot of people around the world now are working remotely. Mm. Is that something that you were doing before this year of 2020? Or have you always yeah. done your sessions remotely? 
So I went totally, so I left my NHS job in 2018. Yeah. And then, so March 2018, I went totally online. Wow, that was that was quite early. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So it's understandable people have strong opinions about it. People, it's quite unheard of to do your sessions online, um, or at least it was pre-COVID. Suddenly, when COVID hit, the people who'd been saying, oh, I would never do that, that sounds like a very bad idea, came uh, knocking. Mm. Please, will you show me how to do it? And I was like, yeah, of course. Because it's a great idea. We should all do it. Here are the steps to do it safely. Um, yeah, so I've actually been doing it for a long time. Amazing. And do you find that, because I, I, you know, I know it's different, but working remotely for me, it's not a huge difference from the actual communication of, like, the information. I've got a life coach who I Zoom with. Yeah. And I really, actually really like it. I like that I've got my time in the day where we talk, and I quite like that I don't need to commute necessarily to get yeah. there. I mean... It is a great idea. It is great. And I particularly like it because um, there were some barriers that I was noticing uh, that were getting in the way of people being able to attend therapy. So, for example, uh, people whose schedules were too busy for them to be able to commute to and from a therapy practice, wherever that was. New mums, for example, who simply cannot fit it into their time, which means that therapy would be sacrificed rather than have a space made for it um so it gave people who didn't have time an option uh another thing is what if you actually can't leave the house so for example if there's something linked to your physical health if there's something linked to your mental and emotional states for example if you've got uh anxiety every time you leave the house going to therapy is really difficult um so overcoming that barrier and also there's something really wonderful about working with people online and that is you tend to see them in their own home. Mm. So rather than people coming into therapy and thinking, oh my God, I'm going to go and see a doctor, because that's another thing. In the media, I read this article, I think it was this week, that there are three tropes for therapists in films. I cannot remember all of them, but they're basically, one is the kind of hyper neurotic therapist who's always in a flap and is totally unuseful, like totally useless. Two is that they're really nasty and really critical. And I can't remember what the third was, but essentially all three make therapists look useless <laughs> and scary. Maybe the third one is wearing a pashmina. Oh, I'm sure. Oh my, okay, floaty clothes actually is a thing in the therapy profession. Um, but that's hilarious that you said that. I love that. It's so true. Um, I'm just thinking of that scene in Fleabag <laughs> where she's moisturising her elbows. Yes. Oh my word. Exactly. So people obviously come to therapy during a time of distress and then have to battle entering into a space that they have lots of preconceived ideas about, which are often negative. So when I see people in their own home, they normally have a cup of tea. They're maybe wearing something really like soft and comfy and fluffy that, that's quite like a set that gives them sensory feedback. I'm obsessed with wearing soft clothes as a way of managing stress. Another conversation again <laughs> for another day. But you see people in their natural environment and they're automatically relaxed. And also seeing you being yourself, probably. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think so. And I mean, you you can't see this is not what the back of my therapy room looks like. But I have like fun pictures there. And it's always very casual. And also one final thing, online disinhibition effect, literally, the moment you go online, you're you just let go of a lot of the things that you normally um, would do to protect yourself. 
you're less anxious, you're much more able to speak freely. So that mixture of people being more relaxed in their home and a little bit less um, inhibited really leads those first few sessions to be useful more quickly. Yeah, that's amazing. I know yeah, I that's it. incredible. I love that. Um, oh, love it all. <laughs> I wanted to just ask you lastly, just a little bit about your new book because it's out next year and there was a really exciting announcement like this is so huge that you um are you know you've got a two book deal for these yeah. incre incredible books and i want people to pre-order them right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah so my first book is coming out on may 27th which totally coincidentally is my birthday and um it's called a manual for being human I finished writing it on Sunday, in fact, and it's now Tuesday. So it's very fresh in my mind. And it's kind of a book I would have liked my 18-year-old self who was having panic attacks to have read <laughs> at that point in my life. But essentially, it is not just psychology. It's psychology, a little bit of feminism, philosophy, um, some of the books that I've read recently that I love all cobbled together to explain what shapes you and what keeps you stuck if you're feeling stuck. So, and it starts with the moment that you come into the world. It literally, I think the first line is about you crying out the moment you come out of the womb. And it goes all the way through um, what shapes you in your home environment, what shaped you in school and helped you build your identity, how the media might be getting under your skin every day, how structural inequality is making people not just miserable, actually is endangering them. Um, yeah, to how, what your emotions are, what your thoughts are, how everything that you fear to be true is what's gonna color everything that you see and interpret every day. So. I would say it's a book about basically everything, <laughs> all topped off with all the coping skills that I think we could have been taught in school. So people can build their own tool bucket um, that they, they can use at any time in their life going forwards. That's amazing. I hope it does make its way into schools. I'm sure it will. I hope so. That would be so good. There's a lot of swearing in it. <laughs> no, that actually I've removed most of it. I love swearing in books. <laughs> I love swearing in books too. So, um, yeah, it's very exciting. Very, very exciting. <laughs> it reminds me of something I've um, realised recently that I'm not learning. Sometimes I'm not learning, I'm just unlearning. Oh, a I, lot of yes. bullshit. Yes, I was saying to someone recently, one of the main tasks of adulthood is unlearning, not learning. Unpicking yeah. all the shit that you've internalised from so early on and deciding, rather than allowing that to shape everything I see outside of my control, what do I think and what do I want? And final thing, I saw this talk the other day um, by this incredible doula talking about preparing for death. And I'm gonna really butcher her quote, but she said, um, who do you want to meet on your deathbed? And that is such an incredible question to ask yourself. Who am I now? Who do I want to be then? When I'm lying there knowing it's the end, and what is between who I am now and who I want to be then? And what steps can I start taking now? Oh my God, what a note to end on. I need to go now and have a think. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, yeah. 
a hundred percent on it you've got so much wisdom and I, I need it in book form so it's very exciting indeed for all of us who get to read it mm -hmm. yeah congratulations and um i will leave the links below to follow your amazing instagram page and everything else but thanks so much for your time having me on it honestly it's such a dream <laughs> thank you